Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, if you have a Bible. We're going to focus on John 3.16 this morning, a very famous verse, at least among Christians, though we're going to branch out from that verse to other scriptures. Let me state up front my purpose uh, this morning for, for the message. This is a sermon on giving. This is about giving away what belongs to you <laughs> in the name of Jesus. It could be your money. Could be your possessions, your time, your labor, but you give it away. You you part with it voluntarily. This message is about why you would want to do that and to encourage you to do that as believers in Jesus. Now, why a sermon on giving? I have two reasons. The immediate reason is that we've been encouraging you encouraging you to give to a lot of things lately. <laughs> And without perspective, that can start to feel burdensome or even annoying. Um, just in the last month, here's some of the things that we've talked about. Donating clothes and supplies to the Colorado Family Life Center um, because they help single moms and struggling families to take care of their kids. Uh, we've talked about giving an extra gift to the Benevolence Fund. March is our month. Every quarter, we, we draw attention to that fund which supplies the needs of people primarily within the church, sometimes outside the church. We've talked about buying King Super's gift cards and using those so that you can help fund our trips to the orphanage in Rancho 3M. And I just told you about the Mission Fund, another opportunity to give. And of course, every week we pass around a basket to collect an offering to support this church. So that's a lot to ask. And that can start to feel demanding or even guilt-producing if you can't give to all those things, which we probably can't all do. Uh, so we need perspective about why we put these giving opportunities before you and why we can do that in good conscience. <laughs> um, but here's a longer-term reason for teaching on giving. It's to encourage giving as a lifestyle that flows from the, the reality of the good news about Jesus Christ. There are promises that are yes in Christ to us as Christians. And they free us up to give gladly as a way of life. So promises like Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Or Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Things like food and drink and clothes. That stuff is promised, the basic necessities of life. The gospel frees us up to be givers because of promises like that that are yes in Christ. And my hope this morning is to stir that up in us as a lifestyle. I don't know the specific giving habits of anybody in this room, but I think it's safe to say, assume that we have a range of thoughts and practices on this. Some, no doubt, are generous givers, and today you'll be reinforced in your convictions. Others may not be generous, particularly when it, become, when it comes to your money. You don't give anything to the church, 
or to other worthy causes. If that's you, then today I hope you'll be stirred to think and act differently. And then most of us probably fall somewhere in between. Well, the Lord has something for all of us today, and what he has for us in giving is good, and I trust we'll see that when we look at his word. So let's look at John 3.16. Let's read this familiar passage, and then ask the Lord to open our hearts and minds to it with fresh eyes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior, for providing the Holy Spirit by whom all the blessings of salvation are realized in our lives. Come, Holy Spirit, and clear away any low expectations that we might have, that we could learn anything new from this familiar verse. Transform us more and more into Christ's image. We thank you that this is your will for us because what you have begun, you will be faithful to complete. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a connection in this verse, John 3.16, that deserves our attention. It is, God so loved that he gave. God so loved that he gave. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, his love expresses itself in giving. God's love for the world, for people in the world, is so great that it moved him to do something for us, something precious. It made him give something, a pearl of great price, a treasure hidden in a field. It moved him to give Jesus to us. God in the flesh, God the Son in human form, that's what God did. God's actions always flow from his motives, and his love is the motive behind his giving. Now, we understand that principle in our own lives about motives leading to actions. If you want to run a marathon... It could be said that you so wanted to run a marathon that you trained for 12 months. Uh, if you want to buy a house, it could be said uh, you so wanted to buy the house that you saved every nickel and dime until you had the down payment, right? Because our actions always flow from our motives. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Giving is what he does in order to express his love for us. Now, the question that came to my mind when I was thinking about this connection is, is why giving? Why, why is giving the way God chooses to show love? Because I suppose he could have shown it in some other way. He could have just said, I love you, <laughs> every once in a while, uh, a voice from heaven. <laughs> um, he did that once when his own son was baptized in the River Jordan. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know, God could do that. 
He could, he could express his love to us that way. He could have a, we could have a voice from the skies. But that's not the way he did it. Um, why giving? He, he gave. And I think there's a reason why giving is what he does with his love. And it's, I think this, genuine love necessarily acts in the interest of the one loved. Genuine love does something. Uh, parents feed their kids, right? We don't just say, wake up, good morning, I love you, and then you're gone. <laughs> you actually give them something, right? <laughs> what they need. Uh, boyfriends give flowers to girlfriends, and hopefully husbands do that too. <laughs> After you've got the girl, <laughs> keep doing it. But genuine love gives. It sees a need or an opportunity to bring good to the one you love, and it acts to supply that need or to take that opportunity. Love has to express itself in more than words whenever something more than words is possible. If love is real, it will do something. God so loved, he gave. So what did God give to the world that he loves? He gave his only son. Not, God so loved the world that he gave everyone a fortune in cash. Not, God so loved the world that he gave a vaccination to prevent all disease. Not, God so loved the world that he gave a perfect bunch of politicians who will always do what is good and right for you. He's God, so he could do any of those things. But what did he give? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, we have no way of understanding why that's a better gift than all those other things I mentioned without finishing the sentence. I mean, what could be better than a fortune in cash, no disease, perfect leaders who, who, who rule over us? Those things sound pretty good to me. God, if you love me, I'd like to have those things, please. <laughs> but God gave his only son. Why? Why is that better? Why is that how he wants to express love? Here's why. Here's the rest of the sentence. That... Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, you and I have a problem, every one of us. And it's that we are in danger of perishing. It's not just that we're going to die someday, because we will. We are all going to die. The problem is what comes after that. According to Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. See, God is a judge who will deliver a verdict on our lives that will determine our eternal future. And what he's going to use in making his judgment is every thought, every word, every action that we have ever had from birth to death, and he's going to compare all of that to his standard about what we should have done. And his standard is Luke 10, 27. You shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Everything, everything you've ever thought, said, or done must be for that reason. And if it isn't, then you deserve to perish because the wages of sin is death. According to Romans 3.23, the eternal death after bodily death. To perish is to receive that sentence, which is hell. And that's why we have a problem. Because none of us meet God's standard. Not even for a day. We are guilty. We do deserve to perish. But God's love for us has moved him to do something that we might not perish. God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus. God the Son took on flesh, lived a sinless life, and he met God's standards perfectly. And then this Jesus exchanged his life for ours in the courtroom, in God's courtroom. He takes the blame for our sins. He takes the punishment for our sins, dying under God's just wrath on a Roman cross. And all who believe in him as having done that for us, we get his life and his reward. His sinless record gets counted as our record. And his life is given us by his spirit. And the result is God's judgment is not guilty. Enter into eternal life. You meet my standards. That is way better than a pile of cash or freedom from sickness or having great leaders. Those things are temporary. But this is eternal. And this is life. This is real life. This is the thing we dream about. This is the happiness that eludes us. This is the peace. This is the satisfaction. This is the knowledge that all is well with me and that it's going to stay that way forever. And it's realized in the new heaven and the new earth yet to come where we will dwell in peace with God himself. That is God's gift to us in the gift of his beloved only son. God so loved that he gave his only son that we might have this life. He can't give us anything greater than Jesus. If you've not believed in Jesus as your savior, if you've not received his gift, do it today. There's so much waiting for you and so much to be lost. But you enter in by faith. Let's turn a corner and see how else this passage applies to us. How does the principle that God so loved that he gave apply to how we're to live day by day? Simply this, those who receive God's gift become givers. Those who receive God's gift become givers. 
Listen to John 13, 34. This is something Jesus said later, after John 3, 16. He said to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So let's follow the logic. Jesus commands us to love one another. How do we love one another? Just as he loved us. How did he love us? He loved so much that he gave of himself his very life. Therefore, if we love one another, it will, it must involve giving of ourselves to others. Otherwise, it's not just as he loved. We're going to give of ourselves, whether that's time, labor, possessions, and yes, even our money. <laughs> our love will be demonstrated by our giving, just as God demonstrated his love by his giving, by doing something. You see, John 3.16 is not just a go-to verse that teaches the gospel, and it does do that. But it also communicates a new way of living that the gospel produces, namely, that those who follow Christ will love like Christ loves. We will give because we love. That's what happens. That's the change. Embracing God's love changes us. It shrinks our natural preoccupation with self. And it increases our concern for others. It, it leads to giving of what we have to other people. It, it turns us away from ourselves and outward toward other people and toward their welfare. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is a perfect example of this. You might be familiar with his story. So Zacchaeus is the short guy. <laughs> Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Maybe you learned that song once. <laughs> he was also the tax collector. So what's his job? He's more than an IRS agent, okay? He's a, a Jew who works for the enemy, the Romans, who occupy the country and who oppress the people. And one of the ways they oppress the people is by exacting all of these crazy taxes for Caesar and for the temple and for things that they don't want to give to and... Um, and they also take a little more extra for themselves because, after all, they have the Roman soldiers behind their back, so you can't say no. <laughs> so here's an easy way to make a lot of money for yourself by being a tax collector. So they're viewed as traitors, traitors and thieves. Nobody likes tax collectors. Well, one day Jesus comes through Zacchaeus' town, and he sees him up in a tree because he's too short. He can't see anybody, so he, he climbs up in the tree and Jesus points him out and says, hey, I need to stay at, at your house today. So it's all arranged, and they go, and they have a meal together, and apparently Jesus has a, a talk with him. And at some point, Zacchaeus stands up and says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. To which Jesus replied, Today, salvation has come to this house. How did Jesus know Zacchaeus was saved? That he would not perish but have eternal life? 
It's because Zacchaeus had this urge to start giving away his goods. I'm going to give it away. If I defraud anybody, I'm going to give it to them. If there's poor people, I'm going to take care of them. He started to take care of the poor. He started to want to make things right with people that he'd stolen from. He started to give because he was saved. That was the immediate evidence that he really embraced Christ. He started to love like Jesus loves. Amen. Giving. This is more than just philanthropy. Right? Which is the practice of improving the general welfare of other people. Things like providing water to villages in third world countries. A person who's not a Christian can do that. And many do, and we can be thankful that they do. Loving other people involves providing for real physical needs. We want to be doing that. But loving as God loves involves more than that. It involves giving of yourself so that other people can receive eternal life. It's a Matthew 5.16 scenario. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Somehow your good works are connected to your Father in heaven. So you're not just a charitable person doing a good thing. You're a person doing that good thing in the name of the Father who has sent a Son who has given us eternal life. This water will only last you for a while, but there's living water. And that's the one we really need. See, that's the difference. It's not just philanthropy. It's loving people in Jesus' name. We have lots of modern-day examples of this. For example, I think of the Christian missionaries in West Africa who risked their lives to treat Ebola patients, and they knew that they could contract the disease and die from it. Um, and some did contract the virus though God intervened and saved their lives. But they didn't go only to treat patients, but to treat them in the name of Jesus. To bring more than physical healing, but to introduce them to the ultimate healer, Jesus Christ. There's a movie about that, by the way. It's going to be in theaters March 30th. It's called Facing Darkness. One night only. We're going there on date night. Encourage any of you to go there. You'd be encouraged, I think, uh, to hear about faith and God's grace. Bottom line, the gift of God's Son does something to us if we really enter into the good of it. It frees us up to give, to release what belongs to us so that other people will encounter the mercy and goodness of God. And the reason that it does free us up to do that is because the gift of God's Son on the cross proves that He is for us and that He is going to give us everything we need as we love others in Jesus' name. Romans 8.32 says exactly that. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things. 
It's an argument of greater to lesser. If God's done this amazingly great and hard thing, which is to give up his only son to death for us, is your day-to-day need harder than that? (laughs) Does he care less about that? No, he doesn't. The, The fact that he gave Jesus means that he's for you and all these other things. So you don't need to live a relentlessly self-focused life where you have to look out for yourself because nobody else is going to. You don't need to keep everything that you get because you're going to need that as a defense against all the calamities in the world. No, the gift of God's Son means that God is looking out for you. That he will give you what you need in order to live this kind of a life that Jesus lived. In fact, he's already given you beyond all that you can hope or imagine. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 We have lots of scriptures that promise God's care in this life, not to mention the life to come. I mentioned two at the beginning of the message. Here's a few more. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Luke 6.38, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 and 9. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He's talking there about a collection of all the churches to give to the saints in Jerusalem. And he's encouraging the churches, well, you may make great sacrifices for the needs of the saints, but God will see to it that you have all you need. These promises and more give us freedom to give. We don't have to hoard everything. And then put our trust in our supply. We trust the supplier now. And he's promised never to forsake us. It doesn't mean that we're always going to have comfort. It doesn't mean we'll always be safe. In fact, it'll often make us uncomfortable and unsafe in the human eye. To follow Jesus is to take up your cross of suffering. But we will have all sufficiency to abound in every good work for Christ. We'll give because we love in Jesus' name. That's a distinctive mark of the Christian. Now, we have challenges, though, to this kind of living, don't we? (laughs) I do. This goes against the grain. Let me address a few reasons why we might not give of ourselves to others, whether that's money, time, labor, or anything else. I'll mention three challenges to giving. And I'm going to direct these mainly at giving away money because that is often where I think we have the hardest time. Uh, I think the typical, the 
numbers I've heard, typical Christian, professing Christian in America gives 2.5% of his income, something like that. Way below the 10% that was the standard throughout the whole Bible. Um, we just don't give that much as a people. And I think there are some reasons for that. Here's one. I don't really believe those promises <laughs> that the Lord will supply what I need. I think that's a big one. I don't really believe those promises that the Lord will supply what I need. You hear, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you, these necessities of life, and you think, well, that doesn't really work. What works is, I work really hard, I save everything I get, I keep it until I've got a lot of money in the bank, I get myself a nest egg, and then all these things will be added to me. <laughs> but giving just means money out the door, and I need that. That's exactly the kind of thinking that the Lord wants to change in Matthew chapter 6. <laughs> he knows giving away what you have means less for you. And you are going to feel like you can't live without that. And that's why he makes promises that he won't forsake us. According to 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is, in Christ. Christ in you. The guarantee of his promises is not the quality of your life, but it's the reality that you're joined to Christ. God doesn't keep his promises because you're so great. He keeps them because Christ is so great and you're in Christ. So you get everything Christ deserves. God loves you as he loves Christ. And so he's committed to your eternal welfare. That's what underlies the promises. Something that you can't change by having a bad day. The promise stays. And we can always lay hold of his fullness. We can believe the promises, but we don't always. That's the first obstacle. Here's the second one. I like what I have too much. <laughs> I like what I have too much and what I want to have. <laughs> I don't want to give money to the church because then I can't buy the newest PlayStation. Or I can't eat out every week. I don't want to lend out my car because somebody might scratch it and I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want to have to fix that. I don't want to put somebody up for the night because that means I have to feed them and then wash the sheets and it takes my time and I want it to relax. <laughs> that goes on in our hearts. <laughs> we like what we have too much and we don't want to part with it, but we can start to change that thinking by seeing what the Bible says about our actual possessions, for example. Start thinking rightly about our possessions. For one thing, they don't really belong to us. Nothing you have belongs to you, not even your time. Psalm, 21, or Psalm 24, 1 tells us who owns everything. <laughs> the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. <laughs> the world and those who dwell in it. <laughs> that covers pretty much everything, I think. God owns it. You and I don't own anything. We don't, we don't even own our time. The Lord does. And sometimes he'll say to us, okay, I want to use that for something else now. I want that. 
I want you to give that away for my purposes. If you loan out your car and they wreck it, that's my business. It's my car. (laughs) You just be faithful and I'll take care of the consequences. Another thing to remember is that your money and possessions are not a good place to stake your happiness. Proverbs 23.5 says this about wealth. Whether or not you have it or whether you're trying to have it, it says, when your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. (laughs) That's a picture of something that you really have no control over. (laughs) Your bank account is here today and gone tomorrow. As many people found out in the stock market crash in 1929. And a lot of people jumped off buildings because of that. Because that's where their hope was. They didn't realize it sprouts wings. It flies away. You can't control it. Better to follow the advice of 1 Timothy 6.17. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's a better place to put your hope. One more hard issue gets in the way of our giving. The thought that, I don't really need to. (laughs) I don't really need to. The thinking might go something like this, especially when it comes to money. I'm under grace now, not law. All those commands in the Old Testament about giving a tenth to the Lord, that's law. But Jesus came to fulfill the law in our place and to bring grace. My right standing with God isn't measured by what I do, but by who I am. And I'm a forgiven and accepted child of God, so what I give really isn't all that important anymore. Well, I follow that argument right up to that last sentence. (laughs) The stuff that came before it is true. Your right standing with God doesn't depend on your giving. It is totally because of who you are in Christ. You're not under the law in the sense of having to measure up to it or to pay the penalty for not measuring up to it because Jesus did both of those things for you. You are free from the law in that sense. Salvation is by grace, not by works. It doesn't rise or fall whether you give or not. But to say that that excuses you from giving shows you don't understand what God's grace is for. It was never God's intention that we give because we have to. It was always his intention that we give because we want to. That we do it out of love, not duty. And grace, when we really understand it, makes us want to. (laughs) Because we have so great a Savior who has given so much to us. That's the case of the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. We want you to know, Paul says about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Did you follow that? 
God has given grace among the churches of Macedonia. So there's grace there. How does Paul know that? Because they were dirt poor in extreme poverty, he says, and they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. So that's crazy. You can't explain that by the world standards, but I know, I know a way to explain that. God's grace. They were affected by God's grace, and it made them generous, though they had nothing. <laughs> grace doesn't quench giving. It fuels it. Because now you want to. If you don't want to, it's not because you're living in the good of the gospel. It's because the gospel isn't really affecting your life as it should. Because if you really get it, you'll want to. <laughs> you won't look for reasons not to. But that can change by dwelling on all those gospel promises that we've heard this morning. Let me say a few words about specific applications. Supposing you're encouraged that the Lord promises to be there for you and you want to give of your time, your labor, your possessions, your money. Who do you give to? Who do you give to? Well, it all starts with loving God. I think if that's not there, loving your neighbor is not going to happen either. They go together. It starts with loving God, which means giving to the Lord. Jesus said in Mark 12.30, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. All of our giving in Jesus' name is really giving to the Lord. That's how we love. That's one of the ways it's displayed. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, there were those who cared for the sick and the hungry and those in prison. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So all of our giving of whatever, whoever is the beneficiary of it, if it's out of that love for God, is ultimately giving to him. That's, that's, that's how we love him, in the doing, in the giving. But it might not always involve another person directly. It could be something that you give up just between you and the Lord. Uh, when I quit my scientist job to become a pastor, it wasn't immediately for the people that I was eventually going to serve, though that was certainly there. But at the moment of making the decision, am I going to quit this job and become a pastor, what I was most aware of was that this is between you and me, Lord. I thought of that woman who broke her expensive vial of perfume and poured it all over Jesus. She's gone. And I thought, Lord, my job is that vial. <laughs> and I'm going to break it for you. Because you're worth it. Whatever happens afterwards. Sometimes you'll give things up just because he's worth it. And sometimes nobody will know except him. Your giving will be in secret. But your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 4. 
but we will give of our time, our labor, our possessions, our money to people also in the name of the Lord. And we will direct it to individuals in need, for one thing. John put it this way in 1 John 3.17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Again, there's that connection between giving and loving. God's love abides in you. You're not going to see your brother sitting there suffering and you've got something to help his suffering and you don't do anything. This doesn't make any sense. No, you don't close your heart. It makes you open your heart and give away your goods. It says especially brothers in need, fellows, fellow believers. One of the ways we do that here is through our benevolence fund. So that's why every quarter we say something about it. Because that's what it does. It's, a, it's, it's there so that all of a sudden a need comes up and we've got something right now. And sometimes it's got to be right now. And we can do that because we have a benevolence fund. Or you might just give directly. You, give them, you loan them the car. You give them a meal. I mean, all that stuff. Uh, we'll give away. We'll also give away to our neighbors, right? The other half of Jesus' command in Mark 12, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, okay? That might mean you take 25 minutes of your time, and that's a cost. To take some of your time costs you something. But you have a neighbor here who doesn't know Jesus. He's sitting in the front of his house. He's watering his lawn, and you're coming in, and a thought crosses your mind. Maybe I should go say hi and start up a conversation. And maybe I should build a relationship with this guy. And maybe that'll give me an opportunity to tell him about living water. But then that's a giving. And that's a, that's a loving of your neighbor. You know, it's springtime. Maybe he's out there and he's fixing his sprinklers. You help him. You take a Saturday and you help him fix all the ones that are broken. That, that costs something. But it's giving. It's loving your neighbor. We'll give to the church, too, which has both believers and unbelievers in mind. Um, everything that we do here, whether that's buying cleaning supplies or paying utility bills or paying for a secretary and a pastor, all of that is so the gospel can be preached to believers and unbelievers. That's why we pass a basket around every Sunday to give you an opportunity to give to that. Um, Jesus loves his bride, the church. It's what he died to create. And so if we love God, we will love the church and we'll give to it. That's really what it's all about. You may have noticed the financial numbers. If you get those bulletins every week, there's a little place in there now where we put, here's how much money is given and here's how much our expenses are. And you'll notice that the giving is less than the expenses and has been all year since September. That's our fiscal year. Um, so we actually need it. <laughs> we do need it. Um, it could be that the Lord wants us to make cuts, but before we do, I encourage you all to consider your giving. Whether it's fueled by trust in the promises of God or whether it's hindered by one of those ways of thinking. Maybe the Lord's calling you to make a change. And if so, you have much to look forward to. 
as you give and you see the Lord fulfill his promises. That's an immediate application that you could make from this. Let me close with this. Giving is not ultimately a money or a time or an energy issue. It's a love issue. And what I hope you'll leave with this morning is a growing assurance in the love of God for you. God so loved the world. God so loved you personally that he gave his only son. And he who did not spare his only son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things, all things that are needful for us to live for him. So with that security, go forth and love by giving and watch God fulfill his promises and not forsake you. May that secure rest in his sufficiency cause us to abound in every good work. Let's pray. All of this whole thing that we just heard this morning is all based on the fact, Lord, that you gave Jesus to us. That's the fixed point in the universe for everything. And so, Lord, help us, give us faith, increase our faith to trust in your promises, everything that's true in Christ. And give us the joy of watching you work. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.